morning, everybody. How many of you have ever wondered how many stars there are in the universe? All right, me too. You want to count them this morning? Somebody does. Well, let's do it then, because Dan wanted to do it, so we'll do it for everybody. How many uh, stars, does anybody know, how, how many stars are in our solar system? One star, right? The sun, surrounded by eight or nine planets, depending on how you see Pluto. But let's think bigger uh, than that even. Does, any, does anyone know how many solar systems there are in our galaxy, the Milky Way? Do you have a guess? There's a lot. There's about 400 billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way. And a billion, uh, just to put that into context, is a thousand million. So there are 400,000 million stars just in the Milky Way galaxy alone. But to figure out the universe, we've got to go even bigger than that and ask the question, how many galaxies then are there that make up the known universe? Does anybody have a guess at that number? Okay, not bad. Most people might, might have said uh, 100 to 200 billion galaxies in the known universe, but uh, you read an article this week that said that that, that is an outdated number <laughs> that, that we've actually discovered just last week through the space Hubble or through the, the Hubble Space Telescope that there's actually 10 times more galaxies than we thought to the tune exactly, Mike, of two trillion galaxies. Now, a trillion, in case you didn't know, is a million million. And 90% of these 2 trillion galaxies we can't even see with our most powerful telescopes. It's just the math that tells us that they must be there. So what this means, for those of you who were curious, is that there are 2 million million multiplied by 400,000 million stars in the universe. And, and that is at least until next week when we get a bigger telescope out there and discover that there are more than that. Now, try to let that sink in for a second. Try to wrap your mind around for just a moment how big the universe is and how small you and I are as we sit here today in our puny little solar system. The universe is literally immeasurably vast. Now, think about this for a second. If we cannot wrap our minds around how big the universe is itself, if we just hit a wall and we get stuck, how much harder is it to wrap our minds around the one who created the universe? Uh, Isaiah 44, verse 24 says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Now, if God can create 2 million million multiplied by 400,000 million stars with no difficulty or effort, then we've got to ask the question, who is he? And what is he like? If the universe itself is beyond our comprehension, then how much more so is its architect? And what possible hope do we ever have of grasping the glory of God? Our minds get stuck by the sheer size and scope of these things. But thinking in this way helps us 
to approach the idea of what it means to have a holy God. And what uh, does it mean exactly to be holy? That's what we're going to think a little bit about this morning. Well, when it comes to God, first of all, saying that God is holy means that God is absolutely one of a kind, that there is nothing that's like him at all. Uh, We see this in a really intriguing way, actually, towards the beginning of the Bible in the book of Exodus chapter 3, when Moses stands in front of the burning bush, and God tells him, using that bush, that he is to go back to Egypt to rescue his people from the Pharaoh. And Moses says to God, well, uh, what should I, who should I tell them that you are? Who should I tell these people has sent me? And God says to Moses, He answers him by saying, I am who I am. He says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Now, why does God use such a vague name in response to Moses' question? Well, the reason that he says that is because there's no description of himself that God can possibly use. Any name that God might give could never be complete because he's just too big to describe. God is too distant to understand, and there simply is no vocabulary for him that we can use. In all of his magnificence and power and radiance and beauty and glory and purity, God is only comparable to himself, to nothing else. And so he says to Moses, just tell him, I am who I am. I'm just me. What the concept of holiness basically means is this, is it means to be separate or set apart or distinct. And and God's holiness is what makes him unique from everything else in all of creation. Sometimes people describe this as God's otherness or of his uh, transcendence. And, And maybe the simplest way to say it is that the holiness of God is Everything that makes God, God. And the holiness of God is also everything that separates God from everything that is not God. Now, trying to wrap our minds around the holiness of God is really very difficult. In fact, it's one of the most challenging aspects of God to understand. And part of the reason is that holiness is an attribute uh, of God that we do not naturally share ourselves. So it's a lot easier for, uh, easier for us to understand the love of God because each of us can, to a lesser degree, love. Uh, it's easier for us to understand the justice of God because we, to a lesser degree, ourselves want to be just and, and we, we, we desire justice in the world. But none of us, in and of ourselves, are holy and so it makes it a lot more complicated for us to understand. And yet, here is one incredible thing. God calls each one of us to be holy like him. Even though naturally we do not possess holiness, God tells us that we are to be holy. In fact, in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, earlier in the book of of 1 Peter, God says that we are to be holy as he is holy. And this should raise for us a question. If holiness is not an attribute that we can share with God, then how is it that we are supposed to be holy too? And what does it mean for us to be set apart like God is set apart? 
Well, it's really important to understand in the, in the first place that Christians have absolutely no capacity for holiness on their own. We are sinful, imperfect, flawed, faltering people, and any person who is a true Christian will, will admit that to you readily. Uh, Christians cannot be holy by anything that we can do or anything that we could ever work out of our own producing. But since we do not have the capacity for holiness ourselves, what God does is he provides us with some of his own holiness. And he does this, first of all, by cleansing us and purifying us from our sin. God takes people like you and me who have been stained and ruined by our own disobedience and choices and sin, and through belief in the promise that he sent for us, his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death for us to pay the penalty of our sin in our place, which we deserved. When we believe and trust in that, what God does is he applies that that great work of Christ to our sinful condition so that our sin can be forgiven and wiped clean and we can be seen as pure in God's eyes. And therefore, we're able to stand before a holy God and be considered holy by God. And so being holy as God is holy, first of all, it means that we've got to be set apart from our sin. And that's something that God must do for us. It's not something that we can do ourselves. Only Jesus accomplishes this for us. And, and that's part of what holy living looks like, is it has to begin there. It has to begin with the work of Christ. Second of all, holy uh, living, being holy as God is holy, means that we are set apart by God to live lives that are dedicated to him primarily. And that's what I want to think a little bit about today. In fact, that's what our passage is, uh, is about this morning. What this passage does is it illustrates what this holy life looks like by painting for us a picture of some of the incredible privileges and also uh, very serious responsibilities that holiness gives us. And so we're going to take a look at this passage in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Now, I intended to kind of speak on this whole section, but as I worked on this, there was just so much in verse 9. So I'm going to actually spend most of my uh, attention this morning on, on verse 9. So let's take a look at least at verse 9 uh, again. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, it's helpful to know a little bit about the book of 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter was a book that was written to a group of scattered Christians in Asia uh, by the Apostle Peter. And these people lived in a time period when a great persecution of Christianity was just beginning. And, And so they were experiencing the first kind of shock waves of what was soon going to become much worse. Um, Their faith in Christ and all of its implications were being rejected by the culture uh, around them. And so many of them were not feeling very optimistic at all about their place in the world. 
And what Peter does, at least in large part in the book of 1 Peter, is he points out to them that they should absolutely maintain their hope and their confidence in God. Because what he's going to tell them is that God has called them out of the world to share in his holiness and and that they ought to be encouraged because God has set them apart uh, for himself. And and, and what Peter is going to say in so many different ways is that even though the world may be against you, God is for you and you belong to God. So take confidence in that. And that's a message I think we need so desperately in our day too. And so what Peter is going to do is he's going to help them to think about what it means to live as a a set-apart people. Uh, And and, uh, most of us, when we think of of being set-apart or being holy or this concept of holy living, what we think of is, is we think that being a holy person means just living purely. And that is true. It absolutely is that. It's not anything less than that. But what Peter, I think, is going to help us to see is that it's also a lot more than that. That that holy living incorporates all of our life in in so many different areas in, in shapes and forms. And what Peter does is he uses four images to illustrate this that all come straight out of the Old Testament. Each one of these four little phrases that we're going to look at today were previously used in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel. And now what Peter does is he applies them to the church, to God's people uh, today. And what all of these uh, images, each of the four do, is they demonstrate the idea that God's people are to be set apart that we are to be dedicated to God. And what you're going to to, to kind of feel here is this language of otherness and of separation. And so he mentions the four. First, he says that Christians are set apart by God to be a chosen race. Christians are set apart by God to be a chosen race. Now, what, what does this mean? And this is a a confusing phrase, certainly. Well, this year, maybe unlike any year in recent history, uh, the subject of race in America has been at the forefront of all of our attention nationally. And, And I think it's really shown us how divided we are racially as a nation and how much hurt there is, how much pain there is in that, and what an open wound this is. And hopefully for you, um, like for me, it it has helped you, helped all of us to reflect on ourselves and to deepen our, our understanding and our compassion and our desire within the world for racial recognition, or excuse me, not recognition, but reconciliation. Um, You know what the best hope that we have for that is? It is the gospel, absolutely. And this little phrase that Peter gives us, it points us to that because one of the things that the gospel is meant to do, one of the outcomes of people who believe the gospel is that it unifies people of every race. 
Now, this, this does not mean that everyone entirely sacrifices their racial identity. It, it, we still keep our heritage and some of the traditions and strengths that come with our racial identity. But what the gospel does is it's meant to unite us around something bigger than just our own ethnicity and race. Um, I have a lot of different identities in, um, in my life. Uh, I could list them for a long time. I'm a Caucasian man. I'm an American. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. I could go on and on and on. But my identity as a child of God is meant to stand over and apart from all of those other identities. Because when God makes a person holy and sets them apart from the world, what he does is he gives that person a new identity that's supposed to supersede all the other ones. Now, again, it doesn't mean that we lose all of our identities entirely. I'm still a Caucasian man who's an American husband and father, but those identities no longer become my primary identities. And this, Peter tells us here, includes even race itself. And race is something that most people consider to be at the heart of who they are. And so what the gospel creates, Peter says, is it creates a whole new people group. It's as if God has formed his people into an entirely new race. And this race is unique from every other race because it's made up of every race. The Bible says it's every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So here's how this plays itself out. Um, I'm pretty white for a white guy. I'm a pretty white, white guy. Let's put it that way. And you probably wouldn't guess that, you know. But if you sat next to me when we were clapping during a song, you would know. Um, If you saw me dancing, you would realize how white I am. In fact, I have a video of myself at a wedding that I'd like to... No, just kidding. I erased that video a long, long time ago. But here's what what Peter is saying. Here's here's part of what the implications is. This means that I, personally, Paul, have more in common with a Chinese woman who lives in a small village in rural China who secretly attends the underground church. She's a believing woman. But she and I speak a different language. We have totally different backgrounds and culture. I have more in common with her than I do with my next-door neighbor who maybe went to the same school as me who is unsaved. You see, as believers in Christ, we have more in common with each other than we do with anything else in the world. And this is because the unity that people have together in the gospel trumps any other unities that we might have, even to our own ethnic group. And this is why the gospel just shatters things like prejudice and bigotry and racial pride. These things have absolutely no place in the kingdom of God. And so holy living means in part recognizing that we are set apart from the world as Christians into unity with each other. And we are to act and live and behave like that. 
And so part of what it means to be a holy life is to be dedicated to, the, to God to the degree that the affiliations that we once had to this world, including even our own race, are overshadowed by the values and affiliations that we have to God now. And that's part of what it means. That's part of what it means to, and looks like to be dedicated to God as his set-apart people. Well, Peter goes on to say that it's another thing, too. He says that Christians are set apart to be a royal priesthood. Now, in the Old Testament, the priests dedicated themselves to serving God and offering sacrifices to him. That's what they did every day, all of their lives. And it was a great privilege to be a priest in the Old Testament. Well, we, the church, Peter is saying, are to be and do the same thing. Now, we might um, often think of this as being a role that is specifically designated to pastors, um, but the Bible makes it clear that pastors do not have any special role before God that every other Christian does not. Uh, Pastors might have more training, they might have more time, they might have more or different responsibilities, but they are absolutely not supposed to be more dedicated than anyone else. Every Christian, the Bible would teach, is to completely devote themselves to serving God. And they do it just in the context of the ins and outs of their everyday life. And so what this means is that holy living, by living a holy life, we just go about our ordinary roles in life, in our marriage, in our child raising, in our jobs, our classes, our families, our sports leagues, our euchre clubs, but we do so with a kind of character and integrity. We, we walk through our lives doing our best to reject our own sinfulness and repenting when we need to. Right? We're told that we just live our normal lives with a sense of humility and loving regard for people around us. We do what we can to invite people into a relationship with God like, like we experience and we dedicate ourselves to honoring God as best we can. We walk through life trying to reflect God's fatherly heart to everyone we meet around us and we strive as the covenant says to to be just in our dealings, faithful in our commitments, exemplary in our behavior and wise in our counsel. Now living this way is absolutely not easy. And one of the things that makes it so hard is that we are constantly tempted to fall back into our own habits of thinking and behaving. And it's so easy for us to slip into the values of the world and the belief systems of the people around us and to kind of take back our old identities and desires. The good thing in this is that it creates within us a deep need for God. It creates within us a need for us to walk with him and learn from him and be helped and encouraged and rescued from him each and every day. In order to be a royal priesthood, it means that we need to be people who are constantly drawing near to God out of a sense of desperation, but also a sense of joy. Because being a part of, of a royal priesthood means that we are called out 
from living in the boundaries of the natural pattern of this world. That God tells us that we are not to spend our lives just looking out for me and myself and the people who are like me. But we are instead to be devoted to God and devoted to his people. And so living as a, as a royal priesthood just means that we seek to love God and other people with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our mind and all of our strength. And we are to strive for this in every way that we can. God has called us to be his royal priests. And it's a privilege, but it also is a great responsibility. Well, that's number two. Number three, Peter says, is that Christians are set apart to be a holy nation. And here what you've got again is you've got the church being described as being distinct from any particular country. And so while uh, most of us in this room are Americans, uh, the Bible would tell us that our country of origin is not our true home. America may be the place that we were born And America may be the place that we will die. But the Bible tells us it will not be the place that we will ultimately live on forever. And that's because we've been promised in in Hebrews chapter 11 what, what is called a country of our own. And so as part of being a holy nation, a nation that is set apart, we are supposed to consider ourselves as permanent citizens of that country, but as temporary residents of this one. And this is such a helpful way to think now, in our time, and especially in this election season that we find ourselves in. Um, This is one of the reasons that you and I should not get so freaked out about U.S. politics. And I think we all, we all see that there has never been an election cycle like this one. Many of us um, feel sick to our stomach about it, uh, sad. We want better things for our country than we feel like we are looking forward to in the near and distant future. And, and all of these feelings are good and right. It isn't that we stuff them and pretend that we don't feel them. It's good to care about our home here because we all love our country. But I think that what this does is it balances us with a great sense of confidence and peace, even as we watch the news every day. Because what Christians have done is we've, we've, we've set our hope on the fact that the world uh, a long time ago way back in the beginning of of this place, in the days of Eden, that it was once a great place, that it was once a perfect place, and that sin ruined it all. But we also believe that one day, God is going to return this place into that state. And, And we know that he will do that because he's already begun that work through sending his own son, Christ, that starts the whole thing in motion. And and so our hope as Christians and our enthusiasm as Christians is not to be so short-sighted to think that either Donald or Hillary could ever remake this place for us again into Eden. There is no way our country is ever going to become what it should be, what it was, what we long for. And 
it also means that, that neither Donald or Hillary could ever mess this place up so badly that God might be prevented from fulfilling that purpose, right? They can't do for us enough good, and they can't do for us too much bad. And I think there's something about that that ought to be anchoring for us, that ought to keep us from worrying the way sometimes we are prone to worry. God tells his people that absolutely nothing, nothing, no one, no power can keep us from one day planting our feet on the beaches of our true home. And because we belong ultimately to our eternal country, because we are a holy nation, part of holy living means that we dedicate ourselves to living like citizens of heaven, even though we are still right now for this time residents of earth. We are a holy nation. And finally, God says that Christians are set apart as a people for God's own possession. And this one is maybe the most wonderful of all. We are told that Christians belong to God. We are his possession. Now, the truth is, so is everything else, right? Uh, Everything belongs to God because God made everything, and God owns every planet that's orbiting every sun in every one of the trillions of galaxies in the universe. And God owns the soul of every person, even people who turn their back on him and reject him. God owns everyone. But for Christians, there's a special ownership that God is talking about here. There's a a special possession, and that is because God doubly owns Christians. He owns everything, but he owns Christians in a particular way, and that is because he bought and paid for us with the blood of his son. He gave to Christians the only thing that could possibly cost him something, and that is the life of his son. And so the Bible tells us that he's redeemed us. He's bought us back from the grave, and now he owns us. And the Bible tells us that God didn't do this because any of us are the best people. It wasn't like some cosmic gym class where God kind of lined everybody up against the wall and then he decided to choose the most gifted or the most talented or the most special or meritorious ones of us. We are told that God made us his own in some mysterious way simply because, by his own good pleasure, that he decided to. Simply because he wanted to. And if you are a believing person this morning, you are the possession of God. And no one can take that away. Nothing. Not anything that anyone could say to you. Not anything that anyone could ever do to you. You belong to God. God has cleaned you up, set you apart from your sin, and he has set you to be a part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of his own 
possession. So that, he tells us in the final words of this verse, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And and I got to go on. Once you were not a people, he says, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God sets us apart and gives us all of those things that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his holy light. And so living a holy life, being holy as God is holy, what that means is that we first of all have to experience the forgiveness of sin through the power of the cross. That's where it starts. No one can begin to live a holy life apart from that. None of us are holy in and of ourselves. We need to be made holy through the death and life of Christ. And then holy living is our response to that. It's our response to decide, I am going to live a life that is dedicated to God and to other people. And what this does is this proclaims the excellencies of God to the world. What happens when a person decides to live a holy life is that that person's life becomes like a mirror through which the world around them gets an opportunity to see a reflection of this holy God, the one who spread out all of the stars in the universe with his hand the one who is the great I am, the one who can only be compared to himself. What a wonderful way to spend our lives, isn't it? What a wonderful purpose that we're given. And may God uphold you as you seek to live out that purpose. Let's pray. Why don't you take a minute just to thank God, those of you who have been called out of darkness into light, just to thank him for that. Father, I want to thank you for that as well. We all just recognize that there is nothing within us that could ever possibly be right before you on our own. And we want to thank you that even though we are by nature sinners, even though we are by nature set just upon ourselves, we thank you that you stepped in to rescue us, that you sent your own son to pay for us, to buy us back. We walk through life so often not realizing the wonder of that. And yet when we think of your holiness this morning, when we think about how big and great and beyond us you are, how how we are smaller than, than ants in comparison to you in every way, the fact that you would notice us, give us your attention, and send your son so that we could be made holy ourselves is incredible to us. 
We admit to you this morning, Father, that all of us struggle to live a holy life, that we are constantly beset by attitudes and opinions and trials and temptations that that keep us from being dedicated to you. We are so much more dedicated to ourselves. And so we pray that, um, that you would help us. We pray that you would teach us together what it means to reflect you in every way to the world around us. And we pray that we might do that more and more as individuals and as a church together. We pray that our church would be a place where people might get some sense of your greatness and your glory, even through how we live. And we ask that your son might be at at work uh, in our church and that your spirit would change us from uh, within. And we thank you so much that through Christ, even in our failures and feeble attempts at holiness, that we are accepted by you and that we are the people of your possession. In Jesus' name, amen.